Good evening everybody, today is the ninth episode of the second season and a special one. Today will be dedicated to a neurosurgical topic again, but this time not inspired by another stiff article from a fancy medical journal, but by a random article that I encountered in the COVID section of The Guardian. Its title was A Great Blow to Uganda. Surgeon John Baptist Mukasa dies of COVID, which was published on the 10th of August. John Baptist Mukasa was one of the first native neurosurgeons of Uganda and passed away in June due to COVID. I have no idea why the article was published in August, but it was interesting enough to dive deeper into the man's life and a reason to explore the way neurosurgery is organized in a country like Uganda. The article I will start from is called The Past, Present and Future of Neurosurgery in Uganda from Michael Haglund, a guy from the Duke University in North Carolina. This center in the USA is very important in the evolution of neurosurgery in Uganda. The history of neurosurgery in Uganda starts in 1960. It started with one guy, Jovan Kiryabwaer. He studied medicine at the Makerere University and got his degree in 1957. At the time, two surgeons, Locke from London and Bailey at Belfast, opened the first neurosurgical unit at the Mulago Hospital in the capital of Uganda, Kampala. Jovan trained on the lock in Queen Square in London, but refused the proposition to stay there because he wanted to return to his home country, where he started working at the Mulago Hospital. In addition to his duties as the sole neurosurgeon in Uganda, he took a research interest in anterior encephalocelus and pituitary tumors. He was active in East Africa and consulted on establishing medical schools in Kenya and Tanzania. Apart from his own career as a surgeon, he took a particular interest in the future of neurosurgery in Uganda. He realized that a major problem he needed to fix was the fact that the residents who received their training abroad did not return to Uganda. This kind of brain drain we can also find in other fields in Africa. It influenced his vision on what good training should be. He stated that training should be local because of decreased expense, increased exposure to relevant local pathology and of course the retention of Ugandan neurosurgeons. In 2000, the new era of Dr. Kiriwa Boyer spoke of would begin when two key events led to a complete transformation of neurosurgery. First, Ugandan surgeons, better known as Michael Muhumuza, John Mukasa and Hussein Senyovo, pursued neurosurgery abroad and sought their training outside of Uganda. His own son, Joel Kiriapwire, who had functioned as a senior register at the Mulago Hospital, went for training to Australia. But the most important fact is that all of them came back to work in Uganda. Second, 
Dr. Benjamin Roth started the formation of the first pediatric neurosurgery unit in Bali, in Uganda. Both events were unrelated that had a major impact on neurosurgery in Uganda. As you all know, I'm quite interested in pediatric neurosurgery, so let's have a closer look at that new pediatric ward. For the record, this hospital is located in the town Mbale, which is in the west of Uganda, closer to the border of Kenya. The 30-bed hospital opened in January 2001 as the first pediatric neurosurgery specialty unit in sub-Saharan Africa. Because of the exceptionally high volume of infants presenting with hydrocephalus, this hospital has been able to contribute to the understanding and improved care of these patients in Africa. They published a nice couple of articles. They report, for example, on efficacy of endoscopic third ventriculostomy, ETV, and found an overall success rate of 59%. The success rates were much higher for children older than one year, but even in younger children, success rates were between 40 and 60%. The most common cause for hydrocephalus was a cerebrospinal fluid infection, and this mostly due to the Acinotobacter species. In another nice article, they compared the one-year outcomes of the inexpensive Chabra shunt, which only costs 35 US dollars, with the Kotman Hakim valve shunt, which cost 650 dollars. And surprisingly, they found that there was no significant difference in any outcome category. In the last article I want to mention here, they describe a novel endoscopic technique, the combined ETV and cord plexus cauterization. They used it to successfully treat a select group of hydrocephalic patients without creating a shunt dependence. It turned out that adding the cauterization of the cord plexus to your ETV reduces the amount of patients that eventually needs a shunt. In an African population, this kind of proof has extra value as shunts are not only expensive, but also associated with a lot of complications that require new interventions. I shortly describe the surgical procedure. They start with a classic ETV. They do it before they start the cauterization. Then, beginning at the foramen of Monroe, they gradually move in posteriorly and they cauterize the cord plexus of the lateral ventricle with a low voltage monopolar coagulating current. In cases of severe ventriculomegaly, a portion of the cord plexus in the anterior roof of the third ventricle was often available for cauterization as well. Their research added a lot to the awareness and knowledge of the treatment of African children with cerebrospinal fluid disturbances. Apart from research, there is a big focus on teaching. 11 neurosurgeons from 10 developing countries have been trained in the management of hydrocephalus and spina bifida and the ETV, CPC technique. CPC means cord plexus cauterization. As is clear from this article, they value a lot the fact that the hospital is staffed with Ugandans. 
So I want to stress again that aside from an American administrative director, the hospital is stopped entirely by Ugandans. Everything I just mentioned is about the pediatric unit in Mbale. Now I want to have a closer look at what happened in the last decades at the Mulago Hospital, the hospital located in the capital Kampala. Because of the lack of technological advanced material, a department like neurosurgery wasn't possible until 2007. Then something changed when Michael Hagland visited the center. Hagland is a neurosurgeon and the program training director at the Duke University Medical Center in California. At the time, the 1,500 bed hospital has only one ICU ventilator. Dr. Hagland initiated a paradigm shift in how surplus equipment from his own center was handled and sent to Uganda. The equipment was refurbished by bioengineers and the best and the most appropriate, appropriate equipment was chosen to resupply and refurbish developing countries like Uganda, China or Haiti. Nine tons of equipment worth of 1.3 million US dollar was delivered in 2007. The equipment included 14 ventilators and 1,400 pieces of essential neurosurgical equipment. I liked the way the Duke team worked, believing in a top-down philosophical approach, which was centered on the principle that if complex neurosurgery could be performed in a developing country like Uganda, then other neurosurgical subspecialties would also benefit. Improvements to equipment within the operating rooms, recovery area and intensive care benefited all subspecialties and overall surgical caseload increased from 1,200 to over 2,400 cases in a two-year period. Despite these improvements, Uganda continues to have a significant shortage of neurosurgeons. In a country with a population approaching 34 million, less than 10 neurosurgeons are in practice. This is crazy if you know that a country like Belgium has 245 neurosurgeons for a population of 11 million citizens. Most of the neurosurgeons in Uganda are also centered in two places, with most of them working at Mulago Hospital in the capital or at the Cure Hospital, the pediatric unit in Bali. But there are currently interesting programs that train neurosurgeons. After the initial Duke Neurosurgical Camp in 2007, the Ugandan program was included in the four-country East African Neurosurgical Neurosurgery Training Program, which is an approved program by the governments of Kenya, Ethiopia, Tanzania and Uganda. The first two residents started in 2009 and are bonded to practice at one of the major medical centers outside of Kampala for example in Mbarara, a city more to the east. In December 2014, Dr. Alex Mohindo became the first Ugandan-trained neurosurgeon and is now practicing in Mbara. The goal is, by 2022, to increase from two sites and five neurosurgeons 
to eight sites and 22 neurosurgeons stationed within major district hospitals across whole of Uganda. I shortly want to mention a little bit more on the Department of Neurosurgery at the Duke University. The Department of Neurosurgery in Duke University is the first division ever in the US dedicated solely to global neurosurgery efforts. It was named Duke Division of Global Neurosurgery and Neuroscience, DGNN. DGNN's current mission is to strengthen neurosurgical capacity in low and middle income countries through the 4T paradigm. The 4T paradigm stands for twinning, technology, training and top-down approach. Twinning means that key medical personnel from partner institutions transfer knowledge and skills to their counterparts. Technology means to transfer medical equipment for sustainable use. Training is of course establishing formally recognized training programs and as already mentioned, they believe in the top-down approach as an effort to assure that building neurosurgical capacity will benefit other surgical fields. To finish, let's one more time mention Johan Mukasa, one of the first neurosurgeons to Uganda and recently in the news after he passed away due to COVID infection. Mukasa worked primarily in the Mulago National Referral Hospital in Kampala and was a senior lecturer at the Makerere University. He specialized in neurotrauma, pediatric neurosurgery and epilepsy. Mukasa was part of a second wave of neurosurgeons trained overseas as he graduated medicine in the University of Ukraine and he later went to China to do his postgraduate degree at the Wuhan University of Science and Technology. When reading the testimonies about this guy, he must have been a great man. Thanks for listening. In the show notes, you will find the link to the article of The Guardian and the paper from 2017 that I have just summarized and that I talk about. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoy it. Goodbye.